Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. I want to uh, welcome all of you to Grace Community Church at Deerfoot. I was driving this past week, uh, like I do often in my sales role, and I had the thought um, that God took action to satisfy his own wrath against me in the person of Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, John wrote it this way. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen? That's why we're here this morning. We're here to celebrate that reality. Um, And this morning, I want to welcome all of you to Grace. We've got extended family here to celebrate uh, the baptism of, uh, I think all the folks being baptized this morning are young, and that is awesome to see. Before we transition to that, uh, I want to bring up Dave Wolf. He's going to update us on his, uh, their, his, he and his wife's ministry. Dave. Good morning. Wanted to bring you up to speed a little bit. We uh, talked a couple weeks ago about the uh, Hope for Uganda Children's Home. And we've had such blessings in the past of our you know, emergency needs and one-time contributions. What we were talking about now was more of the monthly support of the kids because we had none of that uh happy report we have uh and the kids are divided into two sponsorships per child to keep it about a 25 dollar level so far we have 18 slots filled uh of 53 so 56 gotta do my math uh there are 23 children and we have uh, been able to fill that um for some so if you're able to uh certainly that would be appreciated and of course prayer (laughs) is needed uh, as the day-to-day goings on in, in the, the orphanage is, uh, presents challenges from time to time. So uh, we thank you for your support and uh, look forward to working with more of you and getting some of the kids' connections. We've still got uh, the sponsorship set up out here in the back right outside this door, and uh, we'll be out after church to answer any questions as well. Thank you. Good morning. Isn't it a blessing to begin our service with baptism? Um, an opportunity for you guys to witness, um, listening to the testimonies of these young people as they profess uh, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him in obedience and identification. I wanted to begin by um, just thanking some folks that maybe um, that you're not aware of. I have a staff of people who make all this possible, and I really, really appreciate them. The Lord put them on my mind about three minutes ago. It was like we come and we, you know, have baptism, but there's a lot of people behind the scenes that prepare to get ready for this morning, and I appreciate all of them. And and one of them that has been by my, by my side for years now, who's made sure that the tank is full and that the water is warm, <laughs> is sometimes, one time it wasn't, <laughs> but that's Mr. Lloyd Lett, and uh, he cleans out the baptistry, and uh, he gets things ready, and I just really, really appreciate that. There's so much that goes into serving at a local body. And so thank you, Lloyd, for for all that you do for the Lord. I wanted to welcome all of you who may be visiting today, uh, especially those who are
are part of the family of these young people, uh, as you have opportunity to witness um, your child, your grandchild uh, being baptized, publicly proclaiming they belong to the Lord, but also publicly saying that they're going to be followers of Christ in their lives. And so um, it's just a tremendous day for us, and I just want to thank the Lord uh, for this opportunity. Uh, we're going to begin this morning with our first uh, candidate for baptism, and that's uh, Nick Byers. It's not hot. <laughs> I wish it was hot. It's not hot. Are you hot? Come on, buddy. Come right more down one more step. There we go. All right. Well, everybody, this is Mr. Nick Byers. And uh, Nick, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as yes. your Savior? Yes. Listen, two weeks ago, um, he came to my office, and he was so excited. He said, Mr. Thad, I belong to the Lord Jesus. And uh, he got saved at kids camp. And so we thank the Lord for that. And um, I want to tell this little story on a couple of weeks ago. We had, um, you can wave to people. A couple of weeks ago when we had Lord's Supper, um, when the elements were being passed around, uh, Nick pulled off a piece of the bread. And his dad, Brian, tried to explain, no, no, that's for those people that belong to the Lord. He said, Dad, I do belong to the Lord. And so he was sharing with him how he came to know the Lord at kids camp. And so we're thrilled, aren't we, that Nick belongs to the Lord. Is it your desire, Nick, to, to live your life for the Lord? Yes, sir. All right. Praise the Lord. What well, is my privilege now, my brother, to baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Don't want them coming back down on me. <laughs> All right, come on, Kaylee. Next candidate for baptism is Nick's sister, Kaylee. Kaylee Byers. Isn't this wonderful? Waving all those people out there. Well, Kaylee, you know you're my sister. And uh, I'm thankful you belong to the Lord. And uh, you want to tell these people you belong to Jesus Christ? Yes, sir. All right. And is it your desire to live for the Lord in your life? Yes, sir. All right. Was my privilege now, my sister, to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, our next candidate for baptism is Callie Barnett. There they are. Look at them. Mom's way over there. I just love these kids, and it's wonderful. As they get older, I'm like, man, Lord, you've given me such a privilege to be able to baptize so many young people and adults, and uh, I'm just thankful, so thankful. Callie, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yes, sir. You hear that? Isn't that wonderful? Amen. And is it your desire to live for him in your life? Yes, sir. All right. What well, is my privilege now, my sister, to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? 
Okay? Mm -hmm. All right, and our last candidate for baptism this morning is Connor Barnett. I told you that would happen, didn't I? <laughs> I told him, I said, when you walk down there, these people are going to laugh. And they're, they're not laughing at you. They're laughing at me. <laughs> because what they're thinking is, how in the world is that man going to get you down and back up? We haven't done that yet, all right? So, all right. Connor, uh, it was a privilege to talk with you the other day in the office. And one of the things that... Um, I wanted to tell you as a congregation is uh, as we were having a conversation it was very clear that not only does he belong to the Lord but you can tell that this young man wants to live for the Lord and the Lord is working in his life and so I just really really appreciate that so Connor do you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ yes sir you know him as your savior yes sir and it's your desire to live for him in your life yes sir well my brother it is my privilege now to baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Son part was a little crackly. <laughs> well, we thank the Lord for all these young people, and it's a blessing to be able to uh, witness that for you guys. I told them today, before we left to come out here, I said, you know, these people uh, know you by name, but now you know they're your brother and they're your sister, and that's different. And so they're going to keep you accountable and build into your lives, and so you're just as much a part of this as I am and as they are because we're rejoicing that they belong to the Lord, and we're going to walk beside them as they seek to live to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why don't we uh, have a word of prayer together, and we'll continue in our worship. Father, it's days like today that just remind me of your grace, because none of us deserve your great salvation. But it's a free gift. And we're thankful for the free gift. We're thankful that these young people who were baptized today belong to you. And Father, we're thankful that they've trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, and him alone for their salvation. And we're thankful that these four young people want to live their life for you. And Father, as a church... As the church, we have a responsibility to build into the lives of these young people. I pray we'd be faithful to do that. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today that does not know you as their Savior, that today could be that day where they would come to understand that the Lord Jesus paid the penalty for their sin on the cross at Calvary. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. According to the scriptures. And his ascended father to your right hand. 
And we're waiting for our Savior to come get us. And until we do, we have the responsibility to disseminate the gospel. I pray we would do that faithfully. And so thank you, Father, for the salvation that I have in you, that all of the church here has in you, those who've been called out, and for these four uh, people who've been baptized, we just pray for these students, Lord, that you would continue to work in their hearts and in their lives. And we give you the glory and you the praise, Father, because you're the only one that's worthy of that. And all this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, we have an account of Peter and John who, if you guys remember, uh, they're approaching the gate outside the temple. And there was a lame beggar who had been sitting there for what must have been years. He was about 40 years old. And he asked them for provision. And uh, Peter responded um, with the gospel. And the man believed and was healed. And after that, they were charged and arrested and, and asked to give an account of the, the power which they utilized for that to happen. And Peter's response, and keep in mind, this is the same dude that cut off the ear um, of the high priest's servant just before Jesus was arrested. Peter's response was this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you believe that this morning? Let's all stand and sing together. Top. 
for us. There is no other name. There is no other name. Jesus Christ our God. Oh, seated on high, the undefeated one. Mountains bow down as we lift him up.
so we sing blessed we sing blessed be your name <clears throat> one of the things that Peter and John when they were arrested um, they were basically like shut your mouths stop preaching the gospel that the religious leaders the scriptures say they were annoyed that they were preaching the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ and you know what the response was we can't help but speak the things we've seen and heard Lord help us that we have to speak what we've seen and heard amen blessed be your name Let's sing this together. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. And blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name, yeah, yeah. Every blessing in the poor out of, turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will sing, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be song that we're about to sing it's called highlands and it's that same line of thought that lord if you've moved the mountains i'm going to praise you and if that mountain's still staring at me if the obstacle that you've allowed in my life is still staring me in the face i'm going to praise you i was thinking about these young people being baptized oh that they would be resolved in their heart that no matter the circumstances they trust the lord no matter what Shadow me through the night, trace my steps. 
challenge, isn't it, when you walk through different things in life that are hard, that you're still able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
like for you to have your Bibles in Acts chapter 15. Connor, I do want you to know that when I was 20 years old, I was a lifeguard. (laughs) So if it would have gotten rough up there, (laughs) I would have left you. There's no more important question than the question of how is one saved. And there's no more important question in your life to answer than are you saved? Do you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? It is important that you understand That while leadership has the responsibility to protect and guard the sheep and to protect and guard the gospel and to protect and guard the doctrines of the faith, you as a believer have the same responsibility. Shepherds can't be everywhere at one time. And there are many sheep. And if a shepherd's going to tend to the sheep, then the shepherd has to be amongst the sheep. And when the shepherd is amongst the sheep, he comes to understand how important it is to guard the sheep. Remember what we said as we started this series together. But this is what God expects of your leaders. He expects your leaders to keep watch over your souls. As those who would give an account. And as we come to Acts 15, the people are stirring up trouble as it relates to the gospel, wanting to add to the gospel of grace. That's what the Judaizers were intending to do. They were wanting to put on these Gentiles a yoke that they themselves could not even bear. (laughs) And so as we think about the importance of leadership and watching over the souls of those that they've been in charge to, it's imperative that those who are shepherds understand that they will give an account. There are meetings that you and I are late to. There are meetings that you and I don't go to, that we were scheduled to go to. And sometimes we just flat out forget. But there's going to come a time, the Bible tells us, that every single person will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. But every single leader will stand before the Lord and give an account. That's pretty traumatic when you think about it. Because the responsibility is so important that leaders not be discouraged in that and look at that like, whoa, that's just, you know. 
but be thankful that God has charged them with that responsibility. And take the responsibility serious. Just like we as parents take the responsibility seriously to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that primary responsibility is with fathers. It is important that we take what God says to be serious. You know, there's a time for everything under heaven. And part of that time is a time to be serious. You know, and the way church is done these days, it's like if you don't have fun, then you've missed out on the show. And the reality is that it is a celebration and we worship and we have a great time together. But at times we're introduced to subjects that demand our attention and that are very, very difficult not only to absorb but very difficult to put into practice. If I was not one of the leaders, I'm not sure how I would hear these series of sermons, to be honest with you. I might go, well, Dad, you probably ought to be talking just to the elders and then you know, as long as they get their act together and understand what they're to do, then that's all good. But if I understand this verse correctly, the last part of the verse applies to congregation. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so it's important that we all understand that God has this plan for the church. And he has a structure to the church. He has order. We serve a God of order. And within the framework of the church, there are elders and there are deacons. And the elders have the responsibility, I believe, to protect, according to what I can understand from the Word of God, to protect and guard the truth. If you're guarding something, you're interested in that. If you take something and guard it, quote, unquote, with your life, you are very intent on preserving whatever that is. That no one would get their hands on it. That that no one would put their hands on something and, and make it unclear or wrinkle it up in any way. And as we come to Acts 15, and by way of example in what we're using... That when the elders, as we're introduced to them in Acts 15, along with the apostles, they are protecting the most important thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it a gospel of grace? Or is it a gospel of grace plus something else? Did these Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved? to be circumcised, to keep the law of Moses, all these extra requirements. We look at that today, we go, well, it really doesn't mean a whole lot to me as a Gentile. Well, in our culture, maybe it's adding to grace um, baptism or adding to grace the Ten Commandments or adding to grace, you must be a part of this church in order to be saved, in order to be considered one of God's. Well, there are churches like that. There are people that are out there in our culture who believe that they have to do a little bit of something, that, that it just can't be grace alone 
through faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing. I've got to bring something to the table. I've got to say, okay, Lord, this is what I'm bringing to the table. Just a little bit of me, and as I was telling someone earlier today, when we add to the gospel of grace, we're attempting to bring glory to ourselves. That's what we're doing. You see, the gospel of grace is a free gift. So God gives us grace. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. We will enter, listen to this, we will enter into the presence of God based on grace. So as you come to Acts 15, can you imagine the scene? I mean, you have these Judaizers and they're wanting to add to the gospel of grace. And they're coming even to Antioch, into Paul's territory. It's one thing to come into Barnabas' territory. It's another thing to come into Paul's. I mean, Barnabas is called son of encouragement. I don't find that phrase with Paul. But they come to be disturbed, the Bible tells us. In Acts 15, to the point where you come down to verse 24 is they're writing the letter and it says this. You don't need to look at it necessarily, but you can listen. In the letter it says, since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you. That word means deeply distressed you with their words, unsettling your souls. And if you're adding to the gospel of grace, you're unsettling someone's soul. And so... As we go through these pages, we need to, or verses, we need to understand what was on the line in the beginning of the church at the Jerusalem Council. That there were those who were disturbing this gospel of grace and wanting to add to it circumcision and the law of Moses. And the Bible tells us, look at verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. It was a serious issue. That happens in the church where elders come to look upon a matter. There are serious issues that we face as leadership. It's not just the gospel of grace that is an issue that's important in the church. It's, I believe, the most important. But when you think about the church itself, the landscape of the church, there are so many different issues to deal with. Like, for example, you deal with the integrity of of marriage has God defined marriage what is marriage what does the Bible say about marriage do we hold to what God says concerning marriage here at grace answer yes is it important answer yes do you care if we hold on to what God has said concerning the husband and the wife the man and the woman does that matter to you Does it matter to you that here at Grace, the elders hold on to um, life that we believe in what the Bible tells us about the unborn? That we believe what the scriptures say. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Do we uphold those things? Are they important? You think about the church in 20 years if the Lord does not return what will it look like 
who will be leading. Does it matter? It matters. As I look at the landscape of just this body, in 20 years, a few of us are going to be with the Lord already. And so we're left with younger generations to stand in the gap for the truth. And so when we come to Acts 15, this scene is, it's a mob scene in a lot of ways. In fact, there was great dissension. There was great debate going on. Verse 7 tells us that after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. So there was a lot of discussion going on. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I've been in some of those discussions with different groups of people, with different thoughts about different things. And sometimes you can be in a room with people and think, well, now they're going to say this. I know when it comes to them or their turn to speak, they're going to stand for the truth. And you get to their turn and you're like, I didn't know they were going to say that. That ever happened to you? You ever been in a situation where you thought someone was going to stand for the truth, but they... They stood, but they just couldn't quite get it nailed down because they were afraid of what the person to their left or to their right might think. Well, it seems to me that the elders and the apostles, they come together and there's a lot of discussion going on about this very critical issue. And they do come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is in verse 11. This is the conclusion of their debate. Initially, verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Do you believe that today? Do you believe you're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus? And that's it. And that once you come to faith in Christ, you're His forever. You believe that? Do you believe in the security of the believer that once you're saved, you're sealed by the Spirit of God? You want to sit on a council and say, I will not back down from that. There was a lot at stake. And these are, these are uh, pretty significant people that we're looking at in church history. You have Paul, you have Barnabas, you have Peter. Hello. You have James. By the way, he's kind of ignored for some reason. But he seems to be very important here in the context of Acts 15. Seems to be a pretty important person in Jerusalem. But the great discussion and debate as we have it worded in the text, it says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Isn't that amazing the way that's worded? One might have expected Peter to say this. That they can be saved like us. We're the Jews, they're the Gentiles. They can be saved like we're saved. But that's not what it says. He says here, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. They don't have to become Jews to be saved. They don't have to be circumcised to be saved or keep the law of Moses to be saved. This salvation thing's based on grace. You say, that, what's the big deal? Well, it would have been a big deal for a Jew. Let's just be honest, right? 
We understand the history, don't we, in the Old Testament and the promises that were made to Israel. God had a people. And now all of a sudden through the vision of of Peter in Acts 10, which was 10 years earlier, and Paul, this gospel is not just for the Jew, but it's for the Gentile. Aren't we glad? I mean, you're glad, whether you know you're glad or not. You're glad. And so here you have this scene where Peter's saying, hey, look, we can be saved like they are. We, Peter, a Jew, we can be saved like these Gentiles. These scum buckets, these dogs, what are you talking about? And it's just all based on grace. Can you imagine for them wrapping their minds around that? But that's the decision. You know what leaders have to do at times? Make hard decisions. But that was the decision. And Peter stood up in the midst of those people and said, it's grace. And we sing it, don't we? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Aren't we glad it's grace? And it's not grace plus one thing or five things or 613 things. These Gentile believers, I mean, what did they have? Isn't it interesting that Peter gives to his audience this amazing picture of this great salvation beginning in verse 7. He says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, ten years before, he's referring to the vision and to the house of Cornelius. Like, hey, this has already been settled. The gospel isn't just for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. God made a choice among you that by my mouth, Peter says, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and what? Believe. Hear and believe. That ought to be just by way of application and encouragement for us when we're sharing the gospel. People need to hear the gospel. And they don't need to hear a small part or the part that sounds good, but the whole. And you know, I've got really good news for you guys this morning. The whole is a wonderful, wonderful story. You say, yeah, Thad, but you have to bring up that sin word. That's right. You do. You bring up the sin word. You know what the Bible says? That he became, Jesus Christ became the satisfaction for our sins. And he's talking about the believer, but not only for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He paid it all. It's great to be able to look at somebody and say, hey, look, you don't have to pay for your sins. Christ paid for them. I know when I was a boy and I got saved at seven... I remember thinking, wow, Jesus paid for my sins. And I knew I was a sinner at seven. The Spirit of God convicted me of my sin. 
my need for Christ. And so Peter says, look, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Ten years earlier. And now here we're standing and having this debate. And God who knows the heart. Look at the benefits here of these Gentile believers who were converted. And God who knows the heart testified to them. To who? The Gentiles. To the ones who had come to Christ. Giving them what? The Holy Spirit. Just as he also did to us. So it's, you know what Peter's saying? At salvation we were given the Spirit. And you know what? The Gentile was too. He was given the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit of God this morning? If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. And He lives in you. And you're not powerless. I hear a lot of discussion lately about living for Christ and people trying to do that in their own strength. And I've got really good news for you there. You can't live for Christ in your own strength. But you have the power source that is in you to live to the glory of God. So, Peter says they have the Spirit. Just as we have the Spirit. And look at verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts, the Gentile hearts, by what? By faith, plus this, plus that. By faith. By faith. Someone, someone says, what must I do to be saved? You go to chapter 16, and what does Paul tell the Philippian jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Believe. Can you point back to that moment for you when you were justified by faith? I think it's important. You might not have an exact time, but it's important to understand that. I mean, eternity's on the line. Well, notice what he says, verse 10. Now, therefore, getting on to him, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, a burden? You know, a yoke was a steering device and was put on an animal to do what? Pull, pull a plow. And do you know what would happen to those animals? A lot of times... Those animals, when they would pull there, they would, they would often chafe, right? What does the law do? It chafes. It's a drudgery. What does the law reveal? Man's condition. But notice what Peter says. He says, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which, what a confession, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We hadn't been able to do it. Our fathers didn't do it. They can't do it. These Gentiles do not need to be converted to being Jewish in order to be saved. He says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Look at the response, verse 12. So you have this great declaration, all this wonderful news. Not quite certain how they're hearing it. But listen to what it says, verse 12. Here's the response. All the people kept silent. Shut them up. 
Truth can do that, can it not? Truth can be that silencer. Brief commercial, young people. The truth will set you free. Truth. So the response of the people, silence. And then you go on from there, and there's more evidence that God is saving the Gentile. Look what it says. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So you can just see it, right? Peter's got the floor and he's talking. He's like, hey, I got this great news. And, and, and hey, we're saved just like the Gentiles are. And all this stuff's based on grace. And, and, and these people respond in silence. But here comes Paul. And Paul's not silent. Paul's ready to speak. We don't have everything he said. But we do know the kind of the content, don't we? Look what it says, verse 12. All the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas, not just Paul, but Barnabas as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They had just got back from this wonderful journey where Gentiles were being saved and they're relating to the church. Remember, we looked at that a little bit last week. They're relating to the church what had taken place. And there's great joy in the church. And then this heavy weight comes on them and they go through this debate and Peter stands up, but then Paul and Barnabas stand up and say, hey, let me tell you about the great things and I love the way this phrase is. Look what it says in verse 12. They were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them. Man deserves no credit. It's the Lord that gets all the credit. He's working in your life. He gets the credit. He's the one who gets the glory. You hear of people getting saved and people just selling out for the Lord and selling all they got and going to the mission field. And, and a lot of times there's a propensity to, to want to put all the credit and give all the glory to man. But all the credit and all the glory belongs to the Lord. He's the one that gets all that. And so Paul and Barnabas are just testifying to what the Lord had done. And so, there's great agreement. Peter set the pace. Paul's agreeing with what Peter says. And then you come to James. And we look at this text and we go, here comes James. What does James have to say? Well, let's look at it together. Verse 13. And after they had stopped speaking. Now, we don't know how long that took. But they're giving testimony to the things that God had done. They're having a testimonial service. You like testimonial services where people are able to give credit to what God has done in their lives? That's what's going on here. It says, and after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. So he's got some authority there in the church. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So there's agreement here on the part of James. You know what's interesting about verse 14? He doesn't say Peter. He says Simon. Why does he say Simon? It's a Jewish problem. And Peter's a Jew. 
and he uses Jewish name. And he says, Simon. Hey, listen. Those Judaizers are listening up now. Hey, hold on to Simon. Simon has related. He goes back. It's interesting. He goes back to Peter. He doesn't go back to Paul and to Barnabas. Not that he didn't agree with them. But he goes back. He understands the audience. He gets it. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the people, from among the Gentiles. Look at this. A people for his name. When you think about a, that phrase, a people for his name, who comes to mind? The Jew. A people for his name. A people for his name. You go in the Old Testament, several times you see that phrase. A people for his name. James says, hey, I'm in a wholehearted agreement. I'm in agreement. The Gentiles, look what the Lord's doing. He's bringing the Gentiles into the salvation plan. Taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So he's agreement. He's agreeing with what had already been disseminated by Peter. What already had been disseminated by Paul and by Barnabas. What's interesting is what he does next. And this is somewhat of a difficult text if you spiritualize it. But if you just take it for what's there, then you're going to be just fine. Notice what verse 15 says. I think I put this out here for you because, yeah. Because I wanted to, you to see in this prophecy, which most of what's here is taken from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Just say it. But notice, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. When we see God saying, I will, at the end of that we go, what? Okay. We believe it. We don't go, I don't know if that's going to happen. Not sure about that. When he says, I will, we look at that as what? A promise. And God fulfills his promises. Every one of them. So when you look at prophecy, just for the sake of example, Micah, the prophet, 500 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus, prophesied that Jesus would be born in where? Bethlehem. Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Oh. You go back to the prophecies of the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, and you look through your scriptures, and there's a lot of fulfillment. But as you come to the New Testament, and as you come to the mind of a Jew... The mind of a Jew is this, a king and a kingdom. But we know that there was a pause button put on for the Jew as it related to a king and a kingdom. You know what's so awesome about this prophecy as you look at it from, excuse me, from the words of the prophet. You see exactly what's going on here in terms of not only the Gentile 
but the Jew. Notice what it says in verse 15. Okay? It says, With this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Where does this prophecy come from? Amos. Look at this. You would think, well now, if you're going to quote someone from the Old Testament as it related to the Gentile and even the Jew, Amos or Isaiah? Amos. I mean, do we even know it's a book? Right? So, I mean, you're looking at this and you're going, you just see the providence of the Lord. The Lord is so, so good. He puts to rest doubt. Scripture proves Scripture. Example. Just, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be. What is the most criticized one of them books in the Old Testament? Jonah. Jesus like, let me put that to rest. That's not just some story, some cute little, I'm going to read this to my kid, you know, with all the pictures at night story. This is the reality of what happened. Well, how in the world could a dude survive in the belly of a fish? God. Why in the world would Israel continue to believe that there would be a coming king and a kingdom? God. This is a difficult text for some, especially those who don't believe in a literal king and kingdom, who believe that somehow the church has replaced Israel and the promises that were made to Israel. But the argument that James is going to make is about a time when the Gentiles will come to the Lord. That this, this gospel thing of grace... Hey, look, it's not just now, guys. It didn't just happen 10 years ago with the vision Peter had and Cornelius and the family. But this gospel of grace is in the future. In the kingdom. Where Gentiles will be saved. And from what I can read in this prophecy, there's no circumcision, there's no law, there's none of that. But prophecies here, and Israel will be restored. And you know what? There's going to be a literal king and a literal kingdom. And that's verse 16. Notice what it says. After these things I will return. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, the nation of Israel, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. So before he gets to this issue of the Gentiles and the gospel of grace, he's just acknowledging the fact that the Davidic covenant, that what was, what was said to Israel is true, that there is a coming king and a coming kingdom. Do you believe that? A lot of people don't these days. A lot of people believe in replacement theology, which says the church has replaced Israel. According to who? According to the Lord, Romans chapters 9 through 11 tell us the Lord has not forgot his promises to Israel. 
People say, well, that's not a very important doctrine. Oh, hold on a second. It's absolutely critical. Because God said, I will establish my kingdom. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David for a literal thousand year period of time. That's a promise from the Lord. So if we go, well, that really doesn't matter. That promise, how big of a deal is that? Well, how big of a deal is the Word of God? It's that big a deal. And people argue prophecy all the time, and I'm like, okay, I understand all that, and there's different viewpoints. I get that. But when you come to this text, there's one viewpoint. He's talking about a future time when Israel will be restored. And when the Lord Jesus will come, Revelation 19 tells us, he's coming down and he's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to sit on the throne of David. And chapter 20 in Revelation says he is going to sit on that throne for 1,000 years. And so if I go, well, I don't really know how much that matters. If I can break it down and say, well, the Lord really didn't promise this. And all the promises made to Israel now are fulfilled in the church. Or the church has replaced Israel. I am rejecting what God has said. Sorry. That might sound harsh to you, but that's the truth. I'm rejecting it. And if I can say, well, the Lord's word breaks down here. Then I have a problem a lot of different places. And you've heard of dispensationalism and covenant theology. And, and I don't know. I mean, everybody has their viewpoints. Uh, as you can tell, I'm a dispensationalist. And if you take the promises made to Israel and say the church fulfills those promises or has replaced Israel, then you have to take that Old Testament and do a lot of scissor cutting. And you have to take what the disciples were expecting and do some scissor cutting in Acts chapter 1. Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? They understood. They got it. So the nation of Israel will be restored. This prophecy is about the millennial kingdom when Gentiles will come to faith. You say, Thad, what are you talking about? Look at verse 17. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Who's the rest of mankind? The Gentiles. And all the Gentiles who are what? Called by my name. Is that a phrase we understand? Called by my name. We're called by his name. What the Bible tells us in Romans, we're called. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from long ago. One of the things about prophecy that I mean, I had the, one of the greatest teachers there is. I had George Moranch, and uh, I had Dr. Wex. And one of the things that I just longed to understand more was prophecy. I mean, I was, just, I was like, mm, I got to understand this. And I hope you appreciate this. I, like, I used to like, when I was younger, dot to dot. And so when you open a dot to dot, you're like, that dot connects to that dot. And, that. and, you, and then all of a sudden, there's this clear picture. That's how prophecy is. And it's all connected to the gospel of grace. Because the gospel of grace is going to be something that's disseminated not only during the tribulation period, but during the millennial kingdom. 
Zechariah tells us that in chapter 8. So you say, well, how in the world do Gentiles get into the kingdom? I'm glad you asked the question. I want you to go with me. I think I might have put this here for you. Oh, I want to show you that in a minute. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 24. I want to show you something. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, look what it says, verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Matthew 24, 37. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. That's a lot of people, by the way. What were those people taken away to? Answer, judgment. So, look at this. Will the coming of the Son of Man be? And one of the mistakes that is made is people looking at this text and goes, this is the rapture. This is not the rapture. This is the separation of the sheep and the goats at the end of the tribulation period. Before Christ comes and and those who will enter the kingdom and those who will be taken away. So when you read verse 40, it says... Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. How many times have you heard that talking about the rapture? Many times. When I was growing up, I used to hear about it. I was like, then I, got, I was taught and I was like, hey, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a time when at the end of the tribulation period, entering the kingdom, there will be this judgment. And the Bible says there will be two men in the field. One will be taken away to judgment. And one will be left to do what? enter the kingdom two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken away where to judgment and one will be left and you're going to have people gentile believers who are going to enter the kingdom and populate the kingdom Remember, the kingdom is a literal thousand year period of time and at the end I think it's in Revelation chapter 20 or 10 or so it talks about that at the end of the tribulation period, there will be an uprising against Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the number are as the sands of the seashore. That's a lot of people. There's no literal number. There's just a phrase for a whole lots of people. So these Gentiles are going to enter the millennial kingdom. And you know what's going to take place according to Zechariah chapter 8? They're going to be holding on to the coattails of these Jews who are going to be disseminating the truth, the gospel of grace. And people are going to be saved. That's exactly, exactly, from my perspective, from what I can understand from Acts 15, exactly what he's talking about. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from long ago. There are going to be Gentiles saved in the kingdom, and you know what's not going to be added to the gospel of grace? Circumcision or law or any other thing. And that same gospel, this was his point. 
hey guys, the same gospel that's good for the future in the kingdom, a gospel of grace not added to it all, is that same gospel that is saving these Gentiles now. And it's that same gospel, guys, that's saving you. few parting words just as a warning if we spiritualize these promises we rob them of their plain meaning and James agreement falls apart the fallen house of David it says will be raised up and God will fulfill his covenant with David and the king will sit on the throne you believe that what the Old Testament promises God is not done with the nation of Israel the things he's promised are true He's faithful and true to his word. That's why we're here today. We're here today. We believe what the word says. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus is coming for his church in the clouds? You stand on that truth. I do. That's my hope. The Lord revealed that through Israel's fall, the Gentiles will find salvation. Like what Warren Wiersbe says, he's got a ton of commentary about this. He says, God's program for the church does not cancel his great prophecy program for Israel. Paul makes it clear in Romans 9 through 11 that there is a future for Israel and that God will keep his kingdom promises to his people. And you know what the, you know what the people are going to do? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10. It tells us in verses 9 and 10. They will confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised Christ from the dead. That's what they're going to hear. And that's what they're going to say. It says there's a future for Israel and that God will keep his kingdom promises to his people. Aren't you glad? Because listen, we sing a, a hymn. When I was a kid, we sing a lot. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of God. Right? You're, you remember that song? And so we sing that and we're like, yes, I stand on these promises. In Israel, hey... James is very sensitive here to the fact that these guys are being confronted with this issue with the Gentiles. But notice the way grafted in here in verse 16. Hey, while the Gentiles are going to be saved by grace, then just like they are now, the Lord hadn't forgotten his people. That was like icing on the cake. And I love cake. Well... Third thing, prophets predicted Gentile salvation in the millennium. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 60, Malachi 1, there's many. Isaiah 11, and then that text we just read a minute ago. Conclusion to the doctrinal position of salvation by grace, verse 19. Look what it says. Therefore it is my judgment, James says... That we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. You know what that word trouble there is? It's a beautiful word picture. It means for someone to throw something in the middle of the road, an obstruction. You know what these Judaizers were doing? They were throwing a, an obstruction in the middle of the road. And this road was called the gospel of grace. And they're like, ah, circumcision, eh, these laws, these requirements. And Peter's like, nope. Paul's like, nope. James is like, nope. I love it. It's like the Lord didn't just use one person to break apart the argument. He used several. 
But he says, my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And then he deals with another issue which we don't have time to go through. He doesn't deal with the issue of salvation as they're going to write this letter to these specific churches. He deals with the issue of living the Christian life, of considering their brothers in Christ. While you have freedom, Gentiles, consider who you're with. You're with Jews who've been under this law, and they've had all this on them. Understand, sympathize with them. And so he writes some things about what they were to do and what they were to consider as they considered their freedom that they had in the Lord. Um, Well, here's the rest of the story, because I want to wrap it up today. The rest of the story. And this is found in the letter. So I want you to look with me just in verse 22. Look, look at the end of this. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they choose these men, leading men, it says, among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. You know, what's interesting about the letter to me, first of all, is it's to specific people. From specific people to specific people. The apostles... And the brethren who are elders, so leadership, to the brethren in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. And there's three things that I take away in the rest of the story in this letter. The first is unity. There's unity at the end of the day. That's a good thing. Unity is a good thing. In fact, when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4... He talks about the issue of unity, and he says it this way. Unity is kept with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he says, hey, there's one body. Look, unity is critical in the life of a body. Look about what was going on there in the Jerusalem church and all these different things. But at the end of the day, through all this debate, through all this discussion, there was unity. It says in the text, it seemed good to us having become of one mind. That phrase there, having become, is process. They just didn't get in a room and go, hey, we all agree. Hey. No, that wasn't there. We know from Galatians 2 that Paul and Peter had this uh, escapade. They had a discussion. And so the Bible tells us they became of one mind. And it's important in the body of Christ that we preserve that unity. Can I tell you just real quick though? Unity comes with cost. Sometimes it comes with great cost. Especially, I think, even in this day and time in 2022, if we stand on the gospel of grace, it may come with a cost. Second thing I see is the leaders were sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look at 28 and 29. For it seemed good to us it seemed good to, excuse me, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. They were being led by the Spirit of God. And that's what you want your leaders, you want your leaders to be led by the Spirit of God. Hey, we know dissension happens in churches. We know that there can be schism in the church. Paul writes about it in Corinth. Um, you know, everybody wants uh, lollipops and cotton candy and cake with ice cream. Well, I like all that stuff. When I go to a carnival, you know what the first thing I want to do is get me some cotton candy. It's just a bunch of air, but it's great air. I mean, it's just good stuff. 
you got the cotton candy, you got those hot dogs that are always kind of looking rough, but, you know, and they call them hot dogs. Carnival is just a great time. I think sometimes when people think about the church, they think about the lollipops and the, and the cotton candy and all this, and they go, well, you know, does it really matter what somebody believes? Well, I believe it does. Because I say this, if you don't believe in a gospel of grace, you're not going to live a gospel of grace. Then the letter resulted in celebration. We'll conclude with this. Look at verse 30 and 31. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Who doesn't like to celebrate? But look at that process to celebration. If I read my Bible correctly and I understand the Greek language, when it says in verse 7 there was much debate, uh, that was probably a pretty hot time. But at the end of the day, there was unity. And at the end of the day, they could go to these churches, they could read this letter in front of the congregation, and there could be great celebration over what God had done in the lives of his servants. How well do you know Paul in the New Testament or Peter in the New Testament? We read about Apollos in the New Testament. We look at the letter to the Corinthian church. I'm a Paul following him. I'm a Peter. I'm of Apollos because he's a brainiac. You know what, guys? At the end of the day, All of us are on the trail of Christ and the gospel and the word. And it is imperative that we hold on to the gospel of grace. You think about what took place at the beginning of this service. These four students being baptized. Nick Byers coming to Christ. Aren't you glad that when someone shared the gospel with Nick, they didn't say, listen, Nick, this is what you got to do to be saved. You know, you got to believe and you got to do this and you got to do that. You got to believe, Nick, in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and dying for your sins. Do you believe? Are you willing to defend? Let's pray together. Lord, I... I look at this text and I consider the, just the weight of, of what was being done. Um, I don't know that we can really, really appreciate what the apostles did or the elders, how they were willing to stand in the gap. And it wasn't just about standing in the gap for the Gentiles, but it was about standing in the gap for the fact that the Lord has not forgotten his people. I think it's a tragedy that one would assume that God has forgotten his people because he hadn't. We believe and we teach here at Grace that one day our Lord and Savior Jesus is coming in the clouds to receive his church. We believe there is a 
Bema seat judgment coming for the church. We believe in the great marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to take place in heaven. But at the same time we believe that upon your return, we believe on earth there's going to be a great tribulation period. There's going to be a lot of witnesses and there's going to be a lot of salvation. And there's going to be people who accept the Messiah and who enter the kingdom. And, and again, there's going to be a population in the kingdom. And there are going to be people that come to Christ. Lord, help us not to grow weary of guarding the truth. Because it is essential that we understand that, Lord, if we don't stand on your truth, if we are questioning your words and your promises, then if that breaks down, what do we have? From my viewpoint, if we can't stand on your promises, we ought to just shut the Bible and leave. But Lord, I'm here to say right now, on August 14, 2022, I stand on your promises. I believe in what you say the church and I believe in what you say to your people Israel and I believe that pause button is going to be taken off and I believe your people are going to be restored and I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne of David and I believe that souls will be saved in the kingdom and I believe in eternity I believe the hope that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ for me part of what gets me going day to day. I'm so, so thankful for the promises that we have from your word that we can stand on. I pray that we would appreciate what has taken place in the past so that we can appreciate more what's going to take place in the future. And the common thread through all of it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we would stand on the promises of God our Savior. I pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. We'll start where we, where we left off there at the beginning. 1 John 4.10. I'm going to read it again. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or substitute for our sins. So the question becomes... What do you and I do with that this morning, right? And one of the things we do is we say thank you in song. But then we say thank you with our life as we walk out of this door and we go about doing whatever we do. Uh, we say thank you, Jesus, for the blood with, with our life back to him. So let's all sing that together. I was lost, I was blind, I was 
Thank you, guys. Thank you, Savannah, for leading us in that. Um, just wanted to make mention of some families we need to pray for. Um, Miss Jerry, who is um, Deborah Grubb's mother, went to be with the Lord on Friday afternoon. And I think we sent you guys the information about that. And uh, wanted to pass that along to you. So we need to pray for Deborah and, and for Bruce. I was able to talk to them, Bruce, yesterday. And so please just pray for them. And uh, also for the Eubanks family. And uh, sorry. I am human. Prayed this morning, Lord, to get me through the service, and he was faithful to do that. I'm going to miss my friend Andy. And uh, in life, I guess pastors aren't supposed to have best friends. And uh, I have a few but he's right up there. I was passing by um, the church about two o'clock um, Saturday morning. Andy went with the Lord about one, and uh, the Lord just put a phrase in my mind when we were when I was passing by the church. Uh, we have hope. Andy has Christ. That's not a bad deal. One of my sons said, Dad, if there are courses in heaven, you think Andy will play all 18 before you get there? <laughs> I said, well, I don't think he'll stop at nine. But please pray for Joan and, and for, the, for the family. I know you guys are. And uh, you know, one of the elders told me, a week or two ago, said that as it gets as you get older, it gets closer, and it's true. Um, but you know what? The Bible tells me that I grieve, and there's nothing wrong with grieving. Christians, I think, sometimes are made to feel wrong about grieving. That's wrong in and of itself. We grieve. Paul says it, but he told the Thessalonians, "We don't grieve without hope." Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the 27th of this month, there's going to be a memorial service here at the church for Andy, and um, we'll let you know about the time of that when we know. And, but you just pray for the family, and I know you will, and you have been. So let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I thank you that... Um, that my friend Andy is with you. Lord, I thank you for um, putting him in my life. Uh, Lord, I, um, I just pray for Joan and for Carrie and the boys, for the grandkids. God, you would just be their strength. I pray that same thing for Deborah and for Bruce. And Lord, I know how faithful that Deborah has been as a daughter in sitting with her mom. And, and Lord, I know that 
um, she's hurting as well. And so we pray for them. And God, I just thank you for this loving church family that comes alongside of people who are hurting. Wow, Lord, heaven's going to be incredible. Most of all, because we get to see our Savior face to face in all his glory. But it truly will be a time of celebration of uniting together as one, worshiping forever the one that is deserving of honor and glory and praise. And so today, make us thankful people, even in grief, help us to celebrate that we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the baptisms of these four young people today. And I pray, Lord, that they would live for you. Please help us as we go through the week, as we have opportunity to disseminate the gospel of grace, that we would do that faithfully. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.